this this morning. I'd like to conclude the uh, series of talks we've been giving that have been primarily focused on the uh, the meditation instructions and practice, and of course, somewhat broader than just that, but. Uh, Essentially, we've been speaking about the uh, different areas and uh, objects of meditation practice in the unfoldment of the Vipassana, the insight meditation. And I'll just uh, kind of briefly recap the, uh, the process as we've framed it, which is to quite simply and uh, essentially direct the intention towards being present and therefore directing the attention towards that which is present, that which is immediate and actual in your experience, using initially the breath and the body as the the place that for most of us, much of the time, is where we can very usefully ground our attention, where we can connect, where we can allow ourselves to arrive And as we start to develop a deepening relationship, a more sustained connection with the body, with the breath, with that simple sense of presence, of openness, of connection, then we have spoken about including other experiences, opening our field of attention to more clearly include not just the breath and the body, but equally including the experience of the hindrances that we spoke about, the different challenges that arise that make it difficult to stay present if we're not clearly aware of them and how to respond to them. Spoken about noticing the the quality of experience that's either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Which we call Vedana, the, uh, the feeling tone that triggers the reactivity of mind and the real importance and value of noticing that aspect of each experience, that quality within each moment. We've spoken about being aware of state of mind, the quality of consciousness, the, uh, the particular tint or flavor that our organ of perception, the consciousness, is being coloured by, if it is it being coloured. And as we become aware of these different experiences, the one that perhaps that stands out most that you might say, well, just a moment, why hasn't someone mentioned this? Um, it's hopefully uh, what's coming next, and perhaps not a great surprise to hear that we equally need to include the content of our thoughts, the fact of our thinking and the content of our thoughts in the practice of, of mindfulness, in the process of being awake. Thoughts are a kind of an interesting aspect of our experience, sometimes are remarkably interesting in fact, given that mostly they say the same old things. But uh, to reflect upon them, to see what is this that we call thinking? It can be 
easy to imagine that thought is somehow the problem. And uh, there would be few of us meditators who would have not, at some occasion in our meditation life, had the thought, gosh, I wish this thinking would stop, or at least slow down, thin out, um, stop bothering me. And in that thought, not having quite noticed that that was a thought that was saying that. And somehow there's a problem in the fact that thinking has a problem with thinking. So it's worth acknowledging that there's this, there's this aspect to our experience that is powerful, is very powerful, and we can see why it starts to feel like it might be the problem or an obstacle because of the way we notice how lost we become in it. There's the famous quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa, who's a, a great uh, teacher and... Uh, really brought a lot of wonderful uh, originality to some of his expression of of dharma. He he lived in Thailand in the uh, the 20th and the last century. It sounds like that should be a long time ago, the last century. It wasn't that long ago, as you know. Ajahn Buddhadasa was once asked, how would you describe the world? This this man has written enough books to fill a library by himself. He's incredibly... um, scholarly and also very original in his thinking as well as uh, very much interested in just the nuts and bolts of daily practice and life and uh, you know when asked a question like that one could have imagined a, a wide range of possibilities that he would have answered but he used just three words in his response how would you describe the world he was asked and he responded lost in thought and it's interesting isn't it because it really seems to pick up the most salient features of the whole thing. Everything that's going on, or much of what's going on, is going on in the world as a result of that fact. That it seems like most of the people, most of the time, are lost in thought, and even those of us who are trying very hard not to be are certainly on occasion in the same condition. And to really take note of that, to really see, to recognize that reality. And then to look at, well, what is this? What is this thing that we call thinking? What's going on here? Because Dharma practices to look directly at experience. And often we can't really look at thinking because we're lost in it. We're not even aware of it. We're somehow believing the story that it's telling or we're struggling with the fact that it's present at all. And so, what is thinking? And we all know what it is, but what is it actually? It's a a movement of thought, a flow of concepts, like linguistic constructs, words, ideas, and images, pictorial or visual constructs in the mind. Some people will notice that they tend to think mostly in words and it's mostly language that's sort of running inside. Other people will tend to notice that they speak more, sorry, they think more in images and that it's more like sort of scenarios that appear with which one is engaging or relating. And most of us actually uh, 
experience a mixture of both. Though we may be more attuned and aware of one or the other. But it's often useful to notice if uh, there's an image in the mind, just to check and see, is there some thinking? Some, well, the image might be part of the thinking. Is there some language, some storyline going on with this? Or if you notice some storyline going on, some language in your mind, just to take a moment to check, is there an image here that this is creating or reacting to, this, these words that are in the mind? Because we do see that they're sticky. We do see that thinking is something we get lost in. And the, the easy reaction, and uh, I'm sure most of you are quite familiar with this, is that sense of just trying to get rid of it. That's not necessarily the most useful thing, as again, I'm sure most of you are quite familiar with it. To see how we identify with the content of our thinking, how we tend to grasp it. Thinking of and by itself is not a problem. It's not outside of the Dharma in any way. In fact, uh, the Dharma teachings would not be uh, available to us without the capacity of thought that uh, was able to express them and uh, allow them to be communicated. So we identify with the content of what's going on in our minds. We tend to believe that it's the truth. We tend to believe it defines who we are. We tend to grasp at it, either wanting it to be so or not wanting it to be so, which is just the same grasping in its its um, negative form, we could say. And sometimes when we take hold of our thought, we find ourselves going on some remarkable journey to some place far, far away. And it's amazing how it happens. You know, we just hear a sound. And maybe it's the sound of a bird. And just a little song that we hear. And we are interested. We don't notice that we're hearing. We think, it's a bird. Oh, it's a beautiful song. And this isn't hearing. This is thinking. It's a beautiful song. I remember when I last heard that song. I was walking down a country lane with my teenage sweetheart. And suddenly we're filled with a sense of sort of delight and sweet reminisce and nostalgia for those beautiful, innocent times. And we're in, in another world. We're not in the meditation hall. The storyline takes us into this, and there's a whole emotional process that comes up with it. It's a mind state of delight, happiness. And then, of course, the thought keeps going. It doesn't stop, and it starts thinking about, so that was lovely, but then after that walk, remember how we... Da -da 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 -da. And at some point, we remember how that once sweet teenage romance ended and how painful and difficult that might have been for us. And then we're plunged into some depth of despair or grief or hopelessness or confusion. Why was it like that? And it's all the storyline running that we haven't seen, we haven't noticed. That's somehow taken us from being here in the room, hearing a sound, to somewhere long in the past and we're lost and to see in that how the, the thinking itself has this sort of pull to it if you actually sit and feel what happens as thinking arises often it's got a certain sense of almost a pull to it 
that it's really useful to notice because it's like we're attracted to it. There's something about the way that thinking configures the appearance of the world for us that is very attractive. And so, in attending to thought, what's asked of us is not to come somehow down heavily on it with some judgment, condemnation, blame. No need to conclude that we are, you know, hopeless meditators, failures, and uh, never going to succeed. When we get lost in thought, what is asked of us is simply to recognize it and to reconnect. Initially, and when the mind is more prone to becoming lost in the thinking, most useful just to notice that's thinking, come back to the breath or body. As you get more calm and more stable, it's possible to actually notice and stay a moment with the experience of thinking and begin to explore it. But the first thing to do, really, is to establish an intention of of some degree of caution, I guess you could say, with believing what the thought has to say. Because the thought often believes it's really important. It's kind of curious, isn't it? All these thoughts spinning around their mind. And they all come with this, I don't know if you ever do email, I guess you probably do, how they sometimes come with a priority red flag beside them, you know, which means the person who sent you this one thinks this one is more important than the other 500 that just appeared in your inbox, or my inbox in this case. And you think, hmm, maybe that's true. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they really are not more important at all. Someone just wants to make a sort of put a red flag on it and hope I'll look at it more quickly. Um, and it's like, unfortunately, it seems almost all the thoughts come with that little red flag attached. We think, oh, priority, it's priority, better look at this one, better look at this one. Um, and yet, as we start to see them more and more, and you know, you notice the, the fact that they're repetitive, they're cyclical, they're habitual, they're very rarely original. We start to notice that, we realize that oh, maybe all we need to do is simply suspend believing them. We don't have to disregard them or presume that they're of no value because sometimes thought has a place and a value, of course. But that sense of not buying into the little flag that says, I'm urgent, I'm important, attend to me, listen to me, do what I say, not having to believe that. There's a... Um, there's a, a lovely story that comes from the Desert Fathers, a, um, an ancient Christian tradition of um, ascetic um, contemplatives living in the desert in a very simple environment, sort of in simple conditions. Uh, and there's a story about one, um, one junior or younger, younger member of the community once coming to the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the leader, the, the, t- the teacher of the group, and saying, I, I'm trying to meditate, I, I, can't seem to, I can't seem to stop my mind from thinking. What can I do? I've tried forever and it's just driving me crazy. And the, uh, you're probably all wondering if I'm about to give the secret for how to do it. Um, the, uh, the senior, the, sort of the teacher says, so tell me, how would, you, how would you respond if I said to you, you should uh, take your cape now and go out into the desert and catch the wind for me? A little confused, the, the younger man says, well, that would be impossible. I couldn't catch the wind with my cape. And uh, the teacher says, 
And so too, you cannot stop your thoughts. Your job is not to stop them, but to say no to them. And by this I think what he meant was not say no, you shouldn't happen. It's more like saying no to that seductive pull that says, believe me. Or, you know, Alice is the label on the bottle that Alice in Wonderland encounters, you know, drink me. It's like, sure, it's turned up, but you don't have to swallow this thing. And probably most of us are quite familiar with the psychic indigestion that comes from swallowing it all, believing the truth of everything that flickers through our minds. So can we say no insofar as say no to being pulled out of our connection, of our sense of ground, of presence, not being pulled off our seat. That's what we say no to. Not to the arising of it, because thoughts are just thoughts. I mean, I, I kind of once had the image that, that's, you know, like thoughts grow in the mind like grass grows in the earth. It just does. And sure, you can mow it and keep it quite flat for a while, and a certain aspect of our practice is about really cutting through all of that, minimizing the degree of sort of fertilizer we're giving to the thoughts. But at some point, they come back, of course. And so observing them, recognize them, name them for what they are. It's thinking. That's obvious. And then to see, oh, that's a judgment. That's a planning thought. It's about the future. This one's about the past and it's nostalgic and sweet. Or it's about the past and it's full of grief and regret. Just noticing, what's the story going on? Is it a fantasy? Is it planning? Is it excitement that's driving it? So noticing also what the kind of the flavor associated with the thinking is that often will have to do with the state of mind, the, uh, the quality of the consciousness. And in naming it, being able to say, oh, it's this. Particularly if it's a familiar or frequent visitor, to be able to name it and say, it's this, it's this. And notice if we say, is this again? It's like, oh no, blown it, or oh God, do I have to deal with this again? And um, one could equally celebrate the remarkableness of a mind that keeps throwing up the same thing, totally unabashed. It's like this thing has got no embarrassment. It can say something it said a million times before as though it was the first time. More embarrassing is that we can actually believe that. But just it's like this. And with sometimes with things like that, I, I, I rather enjoy one of the, the techniques that Joseph Goldstein um, suggests for dealing with uh, persistent thoughts. He says, start to count them, the number of times you had that particular thought. And he said, working with judgment once, he started off, you know, judgment one, it's like, judgment, more judgment. Oh, that's a judgment. Okay, judgment two. You know, judging the judgment. And then through the day, it sort of picks up 10, 20, 50, 137, 248. By lunchtime, it's in the 300s. And it's really hard to take them seriously when you see that this is judgment 462 today. You know, really? Is the world that bad? <laughs> no, obviously not. It's the mind caught in a habit. And so it just, it's like bring some lightness to the mind. It's too easy and not useful to sort of get into this, okay, I'm here to do battle, you know, it's like sort of something like the Lord of the Rings and taking on the, the armies of the Dark Lord, you know, here they come. 
you know, and there's a lot of them, and there's just two a million, you know, and that guy's pretty short, so, you know. Um, <coughs> to not approach thinking like that. Because thought in itself is not like that. It's not a, an enemy to us. In fact, one um, Tibetan master once said, he said, <coughs> wisdom is just a wandering thought. How interesting. Wisdom is just a wandering thought. Of course, uh, ignorance and delusion is also just a wandering thought. The key is to actually be able to recognize and distinguish what is useful and what is not, rather than some kind of blanket position that it's all important, I better believe it, or it's all a danger, I better get rid of it. Because that would be, neither of those options would really be workable or useful. So observing, naming, to see thoughts, see how much the thoughts circle on and around a sense of me and mine. How much thinking we do about that. I'm trying to remember if I mentioned this the other day or not. Um, about other people thinking about oneself? Did I talk about that? One thing it's interesting to notice is how many of our thoughts are about ourself, about me, how we are the centre figure in the thinking process. And so much of it refers to us. And yet at the same time, a lot of our thoughts also are about what do other people think about me. It's still about me, but we spend a lot of time thinking about what other people think about us. So some of the thoughts are to do with constructing maintaining or defending a self-image we hold about ourselves, And some of them are to do with the fact that we're really worried about what image other people have of us and how we can promote the image we wish and protect against the image we don't wish them to hold of us. So it's really useful to notice that, how much of it's got the sense of me in it. Part of its attraction is because it reinforces and solidifies that sense of me. But with regard to the thoughts other people our, our concern and thoughts about what other people are thinking about us. Two points. <coughs> I was teaching a retreat here just a week ago, so that's why I think I might have just said this to you, but I'm pretty sure now I didn't. Sometimes it gets a little blurred, sorry. Um, <coughs> it was about a week ago I said it. Um, um, when, when, when teacher once commented, what other people think of you is none of your business. I think it's really useful. It's their business. It's their problem. Your thoughts about them, now that's your business. But their thoughts about you, we've got no access to them for starters. And really not worth uh, being too concerned about. But even more, I find amusing on this topic, another teacher, I don't know who the original speakers of this, uh, these pieces were, said... Um, <coughs> you would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people think of you or what other people are thinking about you if you knew how little time they spent doing it. Again, if we see how much of our thinking is about ourselves, so is everybody else's. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about them. But the link between 
thinking and the sense of self is so close. We don't see that. We feel like all of my thoughts and all of everybody else's thoughts must be all about me because I'm the centre of the universe. This particular thought is one we really need to see clearly and we'll come back to that topic, I'm sure. But just for now, the point is to see them as they are. To see that they come and go. Thoughts like every other experience arise and pass, stay for a while, arise consequent upon conditions. And thoughts arise always and only in response to contact at one of the five sense doors or the mind, which is a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch. What's the other one? mind um, so seeing smelling hearing tasting touching seeing did I miss that one okay it's too obvious thank you um, <clears throat> or another thought so a thought arises and then a thought arises in relationship to that one or a sound comes and we have a thought an image comes we feel something we smell something we taste something and a thought arises that's how they happen now it's not necessary to get into why do they happen, but just saying, oh, that's what happens. That's what happens. Thinking arises. And in their coming and going, arising and passing, they're equally useful to us for recognizing and seeing the truth of change, as is any other experience. And in terms of working skillfully with thought to see that they're changing, to see that they come and go, helps us start to puncture the sense of solidity that thinking has. <coughs> they, they simply arise. There's contact and then a thought, if we're not really present with the thought. And you may notice at times that if you're really, sorry, if you're not really present with the contact, thought arises. It's just like, seems to be what happens. Unless there's some degree of calm in the mind, or stillness, samatha. And then, can be that thought doesn't arise or it just arises really slowly and rather than sort of bursting into the mind it's more like you know, those old sort of 60s lava lamps and you've got this sort of you can almost feel the sort of lump of something detaching itself down here and sort of come and sort of like into the mind and then it's there and you realize oh it's a thought but whether they're moving quickly or slowly just to recognize a thought thinking come into the body and be in contact with your body if there's any charge to the thinking if it has any momentum or tendency for to be repetitive or to feel like it pulls you in some way <coughs> it's because there's an emotional component associated with it there's a state of mind or a um, emotional process and to come into the body be with whatever's in your body and then one can just see the thought be with the thought and to notice the thought that says, I am thinking. It's my thought. I'm responsible. I made it happen. To see that this is just a thought. It's not the truth of things. It's just a thought that says, I'm thinking. If we grasp onto this thought, if we believe that it's true, then we suffer. Because if I'm thinking, surely I'd be able to make myself stop thinking. And I can't, so obviously I'm doing something wrong. This conclusion has been 
somehow come to by meditators in you know every situation possible it seems it's me thinking because it's me I should be able to stop thinking but because you can't stop thinking what that means is it's not really actually you doing the thinking you're receiving it but it's like if you're a radio as opposed to a radio station if you turn the radio on it receives but it's not producing the it's not producing the radio it's not in charge of the DJ as you've noticed or else you get it to play some better music <laughs> wouldn't you? I certainly would and when we don't identify when we don't take hold of them and of course this takes practice because we mostly tend to so habitually grasp them or push them away get entangled with them thereby but as we learn to see them, to not entangle ourselves with them through grasping or aversion towards them, a thought is just a thought. Just as a sound is a sound. A thought is just a thought. Really, to get that is to discover an immense amount of freedom, of space, and of possibility. A thought is just a thought. And even more particularly, as uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn, oh, sorry, Anagarika Munindra, who is a uh, very delightful Indian man, full of uh, enthusiasm for the Dharma, and uh, very bubbly right till his uh, last days, um, he was he would sometimes say, "The thought of your mother is not your mother." And yet somehow we react to it as though it is and we're in there having a dialogue with our mother. But it's a thought. The thought of your mother, the thought of anything is not that thing. It's a thought. How remarkably liberating. And then we start to see when we don't take hold of them that actually they're more sort of fluid or tenuous they, they can appear so solid to begin with and at times it, you know, re they reappear with solidity but we can also experience thinking as something quite fluid something quite transparent something quite sort of discrete pieces of a thought rather than thinking, 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 thinking it's like huh. it's like as if we were watching a movie and then suddenly you know, we hit pause and we say oh and that wasn't actually really what's going on. That was just some pictures. Some storyline, some image. And we can start to notice the space between thoughts. Even when they're moving quickly, there's always space between thoughts. We just don't notice it because somehow space doesn't seem to offer the same possibilities of establishing control or security or identity. And yet the space is there. Thoughts complete themselves. And just like there's a full stop on a page, there's always a space before the next one. And as we're less identified with them, as we grasp hold of them less, then the space starts to show itself as more and more substantial and significant and ultimately having more potency than the thought itself. So when we start to attune to the space, to see that 
thoughts arise out of emptiness and pass into emptiness. They come from nothing particular, but at the same time they come from all things. They come from the interdependent, interactive, creative process of life. Thoughts come, thoughts go. They are, and then they are not. And just to notice when they are not, boom, stop. Particularly if you have a difficult or recurrent or somewhat emotionally charged pattern of thinking that you're encountering at times, really skillful to notice when it's there. That's perhaps the obvious. But notice also when it's not. So noticing absence is just as important in Dharma practice as noticing presence. Particularly if it's anything afflictive, which we might imagine when it's arising or present, oh, this again, or more of this, or, you know, we can sometimes struggle with difficult patterns like thinking, or certain kinds of thinking, to be able to just see when it's not there. So that when it does arise, the illusion of solidity, of continuity, of substantiality starts to dissolve. Because that's where the problem is, not in the thought. It's in the substantiality we give to it by investing in it with grasping or aversion. With the hope that it can do something for me or the fear that it will do something to me. This thought. Whatever it might be. And so thinking then becomes simply another feature in the multifaceted texture of our experience. Rather than somehow being the dominant experience or being the definitive experience that somehow seems to be about everything else. Like when we imagine thinking to be different than all those other things and about them all, as opposed to simply just another one of them. It's just another experience. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought. It's very significant in terms of Buddhist teaching that we talk about the mind in its capacity to receive thoughts as the sixth sense base, after the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue and the body. As the five physical senses, there's this and it's a sense door insofar as it has a receptivity and then it makes contact with something but owns that something no more than the eye owns the image that comes to it or the source of the image no more than the ear owns the source of the sound it simply receives it knows it And so let thinking be just thinking. No more, no less. And then we have the opportunity to really see the thought that carries wisdom and we can listen to it. The thought that expresses delusion, 
or ignorance and we can see that we don't need to follow it or listen to what it has to say. This ability to discriminate what is wisdom and what is ignorance seeing that it is thought that reflects them. This is a basis, the basis of a profound transformation. And so in your practice, to really attend to thinking when it's predominant, to give it some attention. But if what you find is that you're becoming lost in it, if there isn't enough stability or space in order to be able to simply see it, then continue to keep it more simple. Give more attention to body, to breath, keeping the grounding aspect of the practice more to the fore. In the unfoldment of insight meditation, we seek to find a balance between that simple focus, which is established through attending to one particular thing, a chosen object, the breath, the body. And when we need to establish more focus, more steadiness, we can always go back to this. When that's there, opening up sounds, thoughts, emotions, states of mind, noticing pleasant, unpleasant and neutral qualities, noticing the hindrances, being aware of them. Seeing how they often express themselves with certain kinds of thoughts and feelings. All of that is within the the compass of awareness. There is no hierarchy. There is no experience more or less important. There is no experience from which you can somehow learn more or another which does not offer that same possibility. So finding what's actually serving you at times more focus, at times more openness. And knowing also there's no hierarchy between these two. It's simply a case of finding which works, which serves, what allows you to connect, to open, to engage, moment by moment, breath by breath, just one experience at a time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.